in civil affairs, your success depends on getting the right information to the right people at the right time. Whether it's foundational information for a team about to head out on a mission or putting together a map or other data visualization to brief a general or an ambassador, Tesla Government Solutions and staff can help. With Tesla Government's knowledge management solutions, you're adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. And the value of civil affairs operations to information operations is potentially incalculable. But that's not to say that that's our primary purpose or should be seen as a primary purpose. In many ways, civil affairs should be seen as a force multiplier for a lot of different warfighting functions and a lot of different capabilities. Uh, cyber, I think, chief among them. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this edition of One Sea Apes podcast. I am here today with Lieutenant Colonel Scott Dickerson, and he had spoken before with us, and he's a returning guest. So how are you doing this morning, sir? I'm doing fine. Thank you for asking. Today, what we're going to discuss is this is one year on after the last interview about the Force Modernization Assessment. Going into the force modernization assessment, it seemed to have a focus on civil affairs adding a lethality to large-scale operations. Is this still the focus, or how has the role of civil affairs changed for large-scale operations? I guess I would attack that two different ways. First of all, uh, it's still a focus. It's not the focus, but it's still a focus. It's the first lens that we use when we look at topic, and that, that's simply a pragmatic approach. You know, the Army exists to fight and win the nation's wars. Therefore, your role as it relates to your main customer, your main supplier, your primary whatever, is to look at it through that lens first to make sure you're satisfying you know, the reason for existing. And so the Army's job is to fight and win the nation's wars. And so therefore, it's primarily concerned with large-scale combat operations first, and then everything else comes after that. And so, therefore, that that's the that's the lens, the first lens we use to approach it, and that's why it is a focus. Another reason for that approach is also the fact that that's not to say that there's not risk involved with any other operation, but large-scale combat operations is where you incur the greatest risk to the sons and daughters uh, that you're given charge of. So, making sure that you you give that the due care and diligence it deserves is important on its own, and it stands on its own in merits. As the capabilities-based assessment progressed. What did what was originally focused on change or modify what was actually needed? Simply put, did streamlining and identifying the CA capabilities reveal greater strength or weaknesses than what was originally thought? Um, no. I would say that uh, what it did was, I, I'll, I'll speak personally, and I think I can speak for Colonel Wittick as well. There were no surprises. However, with that said, there not being any surprises, there was definitely a degree of getting down to the weeds and find the, finding out the full extent of strengths and weaknesses, specifically as it relates to, you know, the structure and organization of the branch and, of the, and the subordinate formations and the weaknesses associated with that being legacy formations that then were only halfway really modulated into modularity to, to be redundant. But that, that's, that causes the, an issue that we knew about. We understood it was an issue. We understood the structure was a was a large reason for ineptitude or of how we're applied. It makes it hard for a commander to apply a problem if the actual building blocks don't correspond to what they're used to or what they are they see in the rest of the Army. And so with the table of organization equipment, 
does not fit with what they expect, and that makes it harder to utilize you. It makes it harder for your equipment to be standardized across the board. So as a result of that, we knew that was a problem, but what we weren't prepared for or maybe didn't fully appreciate was the depth and scope of the problem. It's massive, it's large, and it's not a respecter of compo or formation. It's a problem across civil affairs, period. And so that's significant emotionally in lots of ways. Not only is it difficult to go in and figure that out by echelon and by SRC, it's also difficult to justify why you need to change those kinds of things. Not because people don't see that there's a problem, but well, A, you have to figure out what's the right approach to fix that problem and what's the right structure. And then resourcing it is also a problem because unless, you know, it's usually it's a no-growth environment. So how do you actually resource a structural issue, organizational issue to get after without just, you know, cutting your own or just reconstituting what you already have. And those are valid approaches, but it's typically hard to do. During the Civil Affairs Association's roundtable discussion with Colonel Jay Lydix, he talked about competition, conflict, and return to competition. Can you explain in greater detail what he means by that? I alluded to that in the very first question, right? So that's a continuum approach to how we actually looked at this entire study and how we look at the, how the proponent looks at the branch. You know, in terms of its purpose and role. The way that we looked at this, I said, start with large-scale combat operations or conf. That's just simply because of the urgency of that particular aspect of the continuum. But it's, it is a continuum. Competition, conflict, return to competition. And so we look at civil affairs tasks, role, and purpose as, as it relates to each of those. Just starting with the thing that you have to have for the Army. Let's go with conflict in this parlance. So the view look at it as a continuum, the utility of that, I would say that the requirement associated with that is that is that you recognize that A, your actions in competition absolutely affect the conflict. In a perfect world, they preclude conflict. But of course, we're humans, we live in an imperfect world, and sometimes conflict is unavoidable. And so as a result, though you, you can sow seeds of success in competition for conflict. So that you're set, the conditions are set to where there can be a a short or a conflict that ends to your advantage. And then you go into return to competition and the continuing work, because, you know, there's going to be a degradation of the environment through conflict, but you're continuing to be a part of everything. You know, we lose the phasing construct, which continues vastly superior to that. But nevertheless, sometimes linear examples are very useful expressing ideas go back to the old linear construct for a second of phasing phase three alpha your work is just as important as it is in phase three charlie before you supposedly go into uh, what we would think of as the precursor to reconstruction and so but why is that it's, it's because the networks the utility that you had achieved in competition is going to be degraded the assets infrastructure information environment all is going to be degraded by conflict but you're going to be intimately aware of the changes to that. And there's advantages in chaos as well. You can expand influence. You can expand your knowledge because the onion is going to be peeled back by conflict as well as damaged by it. And so by being engaged and integrated in everything that goes on, you inform the process. You inform conflict itself by being present and being there and taking civil affairs operations into that. And then you set the stage just like you tried to set the stage to, be, to succeed if conflict is unavoidable, you set the stage to succeed in transition and return to competition in conflict, doing the exact same things that you would do in competition, just in a different environment under different conditions. And so it's threaded throughout. Our requirements that we were revealed by the study 
don't change in themselves in their essential qualities throughout the continuum. It's how they're applied that changes. It's the conditions under which they must be done or accomplished that change. And therefore, you have to take certain measures to be able to do them in terms of security and other things. But nevertheless, you're still accomplishing essentially the same functions, regardless of formation to a large degree, and definitely regardless of any particular supported command or where you are in the formation, so to speak. And then the other thing I would say is that, so that's that's the uber or macro explanation to that continuum. You have to understand, and I think one of the first times I ever read it personally, when I went about three block war, is that that continuum exists inside conflict as well. It exists inside competition, and it will exist inside return to competition because there is low-level conflicts, low-level strife and struggle that happens in competition. You're going to have competition that happens and cooperation, for that matter, that happen in conflict itself. And I would say it's our job in some ways to foster that and consolidate gains so that we don't continue to have conflict in the areas that we've already supposedly or repeatedly secured. And then the same thing happens as you're transitioning into return to competition that you have to manage those same equities, right? It's, it's really a continuum that it's a circle inside a circle in a way. It has its macro application, but it's also it's also present in micro. And people don't think of that in conflict, but conflict contains the continuum as well. Thank you for explaining that, because when he talked about it, that was one thing that I was just wanted to know a lot more on about. With civil affairs, it seems to be evolving to a more information-related capability, especially in the areas of human and cyber domains. With this advancement in capability, will civil affairs see a greater integration in training and big army operations? Okay, so let's start with the premise for this particular question. And let's talk about briefly civil affairs as an information-related capability. The way I would like to frame this for this conversation, and in general for that matter, is that information operations is tertiary to civil affairs operations. And what I mean by that is that it's not a primary function. It's not, it's not a primary output. Civil affairs, and I'm going to steal a line from my CG General Roberson, civil affairs is the propaganda of the deed. And civil affairs is a force of action. Now, to use an analogy that Colonel Creed just used in a recent conversation that we had with him, we used to talk about presence patrols, especially, you know, in Iraq. And that is not a good term. It's not a good way to, to frame that. Because your purpose is not to provide presence as part of your patrol. Presence is just a consequence of the patrol. It just happens. You're there for a reason to perform a function, whether it's security or otherwise. And so we will message and we will convey and receive information, but it will be as a consequence of civil affairs operations. And the value of civil affairs operations to information operations is potentially incalculable. But that's not to say that that's our primary purpose or should be seen as a primary purpose. In many ways, civil affairs should be seen as a force multiplier for a lot of different warfighting functions and a lot of different capabilities. Uh, cyber, I think, chief among them. So I wouldn't say that we're tending more toward or civil affairs as an IRC is going toward primacy or is becoming more important. What I would say is, is that civil affairs has to take its functions and it has to apply them in the cyber domain or in the cyber realm. And so we have to expand our headspace, expand our thinking to include the virtual and the cognitive. Civil engagement can be achieved remotely. Civil reconnaissance can be performed remotely as well, depending on the type. And so that's how we need to use cyber and be a part of cyber and what cyber is doing. 
there are definite benefits we can provide the cyber or the units that engage in those activities. Absolutely. Do those same methods, civil reconnaissance, civil engagement, civil networks. We absolutely are a boon to many to include cyber. And what I would argue is that information really should be weaved in and out of all of the warfighting functions. I think it's important to all of them. And so that is a part and parcel to how I see what civil affairs should do as well. It should weave throughout those warfighting functions and support them and show how our role is within them and how we achieve the end state that's required by whatever commander or whatever level in those. That's probably clear as mud. I I welcome uh, clarifying questions. It just seems like just with all the discussions about sim lately, it was just kind of, it seems that's the information is the key for what the future is. Well, you know, I, here's the thing. I don't disagree with you at all about that. But we have a tendency, I think, that when something's new, it's different. There is a tendency. I shouldn't say that we have one. But there is a tendency at times to overemphasize or overcompensate as opposed to appropriately placing importance and resourcing and direction against something. I think it's imperative that we change the way that we look at how we operate and we change the operational lenses that we use to include virtual and cognitive. But that's not to say that I think that civil affairs role was going to change significantly to where our information capability becomes a primary to what we do. And so you can have one without the other. And that's really my point. What we offer should be seen in terms of what it is that we do uniquely. To put this into context, what I'm trying to say, you know, if you look at our old 357 that we're revising currently, is an output, by the way, of the study. Uh, the doctrine, every single solution had a doctrinal component, and then most of those are recommendations that are revision to 357. And so in looking at that, what was the problem? What, what was one of the major problems? And it was the fact that two of the three core competencies did not actually meet the definition of core competency. They were bending mechanisms, civil affairs activities and civil affairs supported activities. And civil affairs supported activities actually were the things the Army does. You know, any unit does, anybody does. And then our role in them, well, that's not, that's not about CA. It's about protection or, you know, population resource control. It's about other things and, and that we're just a, a sometimes a bit player and sometimes a major player depending on situation and circumstance. Due to the fact that we had some foundational issues in terms of what we described as what it is we do, that affected lots of other things. That had a ripple effect. And so we, we had to get, or we have to get, our parlance correct and communicate to the Army and to ourselves exactly what it is we do and what's important. Because a core competency is emphasis. This is your core. And so if, if we're not fully realizing what the core should or is, then we're going to apply that imperfectly. And I think that's part of the reason why you see a potential overemphasis or overcompensation as it relates to other applications. That's not to say, I, I don't want to take this away, I, I, I've worked and we have worked, but I specifically have worked very closely with cyber as we go through their force modernization process. They literally took our process and they used it as a template for their own. And ours was supposed to be a 24-month process that we basically threw resources at and cut to 13, 14 months. They did theirs in about six to eight. So they went even faster than we did, CyberGig. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the 1CA podcast series. If you haven't done so yet, you may want to join the Civil Affairs Association. Not only do they have many articles, but also virtual learning series. You can keep up to date with the latest in civil affairs information. The cost is low, but the benefit is very high, including you get to listen to this wonderful 1CA podcast series. Thank you. 
Everywhere you look, there's a barrage of emails and information telling you what everybody has done, is doing, or plans to do, all in excruciating detail. But access is only half the battle. You also need information presented in a usable form. But that takes work, and the more information you have, the more work it takes. Tesla government takes on these issues so that your office or agency can fully exploit the data you already have. Our knowledge management experts organize and curate your internal data. Our open source research augments your knowledge base with strategic insights from our globally experienced team. And our data visualization turns complex data into compelling visuals, while our community building makes sure everyone benefits by leveraging collective knowledge. With Tesla government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. Civil Affairs still is a force of action, and that's primarily what it should be. It is the only IRC, to my knowledge, that is a maneuver asset, and that maneuvers on the battlefield as a tactical capability. And so don't want to lose sight of that. That's very important because you can have all the plans in the world to transition, but if you don't have people on the ground shepherding and husbanding that transition, then it will not work and will not happen effectively. What about the importance of transition management, especially with integration of civil affairs operations? Well, first, because you mentioned Sam a minute ago, and I want to go back to that. I apologize. It's okay. But, but, but it'll, it'll bear on this conversation. <laughs> Putting civil information management into the correct posture and to emphasize it appropriately requires us to look at what we're attempting to do with civil information management, which is what you just said, by the way, in your question, which is ultimately is integration. You want to integrate with a host of, of people or a host of organizations, primarily, you know, your Army compatriots first, and then it, it, and then it goes out on into, you know, joint and your allied partners and your, your local partners, host nation, IGOs, NGOs. I mean, it just becomes a panoply of, of, of capabilities that you can integrate with. But the point being is, is that the information is seen as a way to achieve that integration and unity of effort. But information is not the be-all, end-all. What we really need is knowledge. And we're not the big A analysts for the Army. But what we are is the preeminent evaluators of civil information that then makes that civil knowledge. And then civil knowledge is what can be brought to bear on a problem set. And then that, once you have achieved knowledge, then you are more effective at integrating with your partners or your supported command. That placement of SIM correctly in the hierarchy had not happened, and that's what we're trying to do also in the 357 revision, is to change the core competencies and the functions to appropriately place emphasis on how we do business and what's important. You know, management is a passive language. Nothing wrong with that. At times, that's appropriate. But our active role in doing what we do is not simply management. And I'd segue from that to your question about transition management. Civil Affairs operations, which in the future, our approach to that in the Army, as approved by General Roberson, is gonna be through civil network development and engagement, civil military integration, and transitional governance operations. When we talk about transition management, I would have to ask first, what particular transition are you talking about? And if we're talking about transition from conflict into a a new government 
or uh, what used to be effectively called regime change or new regime, then that's one conversation. If we're talking about just local transitions, if we're talking about transition as it can occur in competition, all those things are slightly different or largely different uh, conversations. So that's what I would ask. Let's delve a little deeper or become a little bit more fine-tuned. What are you what are you asking about specifically in transition management? The future role, I guess, of CA places with it and its greater emphasis. Well, so first you have to answer the question, is, are we talking about transition military authority? So if we're talking about in the parlance of, you know, what civil affairs' role has been and where we've seen great success, I'm literally, as we're sitting here talking, I'm, I'm staring at the binding of one of the best books I think I've ever read about civil affairs, which is Civil Affairs, Soldiers Become Governors. I, it was a plug for that book. It's old and has many authors, but uh, it's an awesome, awesome book, and it, it heavily influenced what we did in studying it. It's going to heavily influence doctrine. But, but what we're familiar with when we think about, you know, the old KMGs, Civil Affairs Military Government units, when we think of transition in, uh, in Europe or even in Japan, for that matter, lesser, lesser extent, but there's some good Civil Affairs stuff in the Pacific as well. Doesn't get a lot of billing, but there is. And I highly recommend um, Dr. Sackwitty's book, Debt 101 in Burma. It's a good book, and it's also how civil affairs was applied to a degree in the Pacific as well. But I'll quit plugging books and, and talk about your question. When we look at that from a World War II lens, and, and I'm fine with that, I like that. So that, that puts us back into large scale combat operations. If we've done our job and we have built our networks throughout conflict, if we know who is there, what, they can, what they're capable of, and how to use them in the USG interests, then when we go into transition, we see the role of civil affairs operations as a primary. And we also think the doctrine and how we grow our officers and NCOs has to build them into the type of asset that can exercise command and control in order to achieve transition. That means that uh, we have to be able to work essentially as civil affairs task forces ultimately and then own our portion or the transition process. It could be either or, or more likely it'll be both because everybody's got a boss. And even if we owned a large or primary responsibility for transition, we would still be reporting to somebody else. But that looks at, you know, then what is the utility of our formations to that? How well can they do that? Honestly, right now they're not structured to do that very well at all. That's so that goes back to the structure and organization question we talked about earlier. But there, the emphasis on it in terms of its importance has not changed. However, we have to put that in the context. How many times have we done that in the last 125 years? Because I count two. And if you want to count Pyongyang, Korea, with Korea, okay, then maybe three. Because we ran that city for about two months, roughly. And then we gave it back. It hasn't been used all that much. And it's not, it does not happen with great frequency. And it may never happen again, or at least in the near term, through our experiences over the last 20 years. So with that said, what's as important? Well, in reality, the old construct had us put SCA under MGO. That's not useful because support to civil administration happens all the time. It happens in whether you're doing a SIMSI mission, a CAPE mission, whether you're doing Operation Atlantic Resolve and support missions associated with that. It doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter where you come from with mission support, and you're almost always doing some type of SCA if you're working as civil affairs guys with any country, any entity, or in support of any uh, particular experiment or exercise. In some way, you're supporting the existing government, whether it's just as a participant. So with that being the case, I would say that we had to de-emphasize in terms of placement of, of MGO by taking SCA and making it independent as a function under transitional governance operations as our third core competency, TGO being the third core competency. So you basically have governance expertise, 
you have support civil administration, and you have transition military authority. TMA, which is goes to your transition management question, is definitely a primary function under TGO, but SCA has come out, is no longer under MGO, and it's its own independent function underneath transitional governance operations. And those transition happens all over the place. It happens in competition as well as it does to return to competition. And we can be doing that as part of anything, helping a new government transition through elections for that matter, helping any locality do so similar, supporting civil administration, whether it's in the Horn of Africa or elsewhere. Does that make sense? It does. And that actually answered the question of just because there's so many different levels that it really kind of puts it in more of a, a realistic perspective for us. I think that that was, that was kind of the yeah. issue before, yeah. is the transition itself is much larger than just what we see in TMA. And we are, in my opinion, I think civil affairs is our masters of transition, and it must be. But, but taking that out of the tactical to operational realm and making it operationally and strategically significant has been, a, honestly, in my opinion, that's just my opinion, a failure of the branch over time. And so conveying that importance, regardless of where you are on the continuum, is key to our continued relevance, in my opinion, once again. With the current worldwide pandemic, do you think that will become a greater CA focus in the future? So COVID-19, I think, basically just underscores the importance that we really already knew as related to disasters. The pandemic is just another type of disaster. And so with that said, what is the application of CA as it relates to that? Well, you know, there's, there's support to our nation, support to host nations as it relates to the pandemics and natural disasters. And so as a result of that, in, in that frame, what I would say is just illustrates and underscores the potential or maybe just straight flat importance of our role. That's what I would say is the primary reason for how we look at this. It's definitely integral to what we have to do wherever we go, especially in competition, because we also prepare and make those formations resilient. What do you think those currently serving need to do to help progress CA capabilities? You know, what can CA guys and gals out there do to push the CA capabilities forward, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And part of me wants to say something we used to say back during OIF and OEF, you know, Semper Gumby, right? Always flexible. Appropriate in one way, it's, it's somewhat disingenuous. So I'll give a little bit more teeth to it. It's simply this. What we're trying to do is, I think I alluded to this in a previous discussion with, with you and with you guys, is, you know, I'm not so arrogant as to think that this is what we're doing as a revolution in military affairs. But I do think that in a way we're trying to revolutionize Army civil affairs. And it's not going to be easy. We're not going to have success in every endeavor, especially when it comes to resources, because it's not a resource-rich environment. I think that COVID-19 shows that the country is going to be facing economic realities that will affect everybody's bottom line. And so, but that doesn't mean that we can't get what it is we say we do and why we do it right. And it also doesn't mean that we can't train to that standard or or to that end. So we're going to be taking steps under the CG's guidance. We already are in some degrees with Joe to respond to the operational forces requirements, Joe Guthrie and Colonel Nunziato, to look at how we provide civil affairs soldiers, what their baseline requirements are when they come out, what they do, what they can't do what we expect to grow them into, what the leader development strategy is going to be. These are all things that use existing resources. And in most cases, it would require minimal resourcing or just reallocation. And so we're going to endeavor to do that right. 20 years of warfare, a lot of us have lost soldiers, lost friends. We owe it to the guys who came before us to give them a quality product, the kids that are coming out now. And so I see it as our responsibility to give them the best possible lessons learned that we can from all the time that we've spent pursuing our practice. And so what makes them more survivable? on the battlefield 
that Wisco environment, what makes it not easier to train them, but efficacious in terms of training them, what achieves efficacy and then can be maintained. That's also something we often don't talk about is maintenance costs as it relates to getting our guys ready and keeping them ready. That's uh, one of the things we're looking at. And, and simplification helps there. I would argue that we've been a little overly complicated, not complex. We are complex. And everything we do is attack a complex problem set. Complications are different. Being complicated is different. It's unnecessary. And so we'll simplify where that's appropriate. Albert Einstein, I'll paraphrase and bastardize it probably horribly, but you know, he said that genius is making the complex simple. And if I remember correctly, it was in the vernacular of, of education and training. You take a complex concept and you make it simple so that someone can learn it and then they can go out and they can practice it. And that's what we've got to do for our doctrine. So we've got to do for our training. That's how we've got to provide the Army with what it needs to prosecute and protect our nation. That's the primary job that we have we're trying to do. And so when we send this stuff out, it is a stretch in more ways than one. It's stretching our minds around it. TGO is a kind of a big concept. Uh, civil network development engagement is a codification of what every CA practitioner probably does in a foreign country as they start to build a network of who they can rely on and who they can't. Well, codifying that, formalizing, and then how we make that part of a bigger thing so it can help the nation get after what it needs to get after in that country and as part of our region or GCC. So I guess to give grace to the growing pains that are going to happen over the next little while and, and to earnestly get what we're offering and, and do the best to support it and find what's attractive about it. We're not going to have a 100% solution. If we can get to 80% and leave the 20% for later, I think that we will grow this branch into something that not only are we very proud of, more proud of than we have been, but something that we can pass on to the, the folks coming up with a great degree of pride and workmanship. I would ask for that grace from the force, and I would ask that each individual practitioner out there look at this and try to internalize it and think about how they would use it, and then start to speak to everyone that we interact with on every level with a unified message of what it is that civil affairs is and what civil affairs does. And as we publish 357 in the coming year, which should come out in the early spring of next year, I ask folks to take that, read that, and then communicate that. And so we're pushing products now. We'll continue to push products as they're approved, and as the FSA goes to General Bodette, and we look at structural solutions, We'll socialize those as well. That's what I would ask for. That's what I think every CA practitioner out there can do is to provide that support and just and know, know in their heart that this proponent is dedicated to the force in a way that really only comes out of combat. And that's that's what it, that's where it comes from is to understand the blood, sweat, and tears that our kids have done over the years and performed and sacrificed and in making this something that honors them. And I think if you understand that's where the proponent's coming from and what we're trying to do with our doctrine and training, I think it may make it a little bit easier to overlook some of the warts that will honestly be there because we are humans and we are not perfect. But that's what I would ask for. Do you have any closing remarks or anything else that you might want to add? One thing I would say is I want to thank One CA Podcast, and I thank the Civil Affairs Association for making it so, making all of the things that happen, the roundtable, the communication, discussion that, that occurs around the topics. I have a great degree of appreciation for that. I know I know how difficult it is to put on events like that, and how difficult it is to be consistent. And what you guys have done, what One CA Podcast has done to help us get the message out, is truly appreciated. So, from me and mine over here at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and the Special Warfare Center and School, thank you to you guys, and a thank you to the Force for all that they continue to do every day for us and for the Army. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this editions of One CA Podcast. This is Lieutenant Colonel Scott Dickerson, and thank you once again. We really do appreciate you speaking with us, so thank you. With Tesla Government's Knowledge Management Solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. 
Learn more at teslagov.com. If you enjoyed this podcast and others, please remember to subscribe and hit like so the 1CA podcast team gets important feedback and support. The Civil Affairs Association is a proud sponsor of the 1CA podcast and the Unomia Journal. You can find more podcasts like this on www.1capodcast.org. Again, that's www.1capodcast.org. The Unomia Journal is expanding its content to reach a broader audience and engagement across defense and governments to include other partners in allied countries. New sections in the Warrior Scholar Corner and the Team Room aim to deliver content useful to our members. Check out the Unomia Journal at www.unomiajournal.com. Again, that's www.unomiajournal.com. If you are not a member yet, please visit the main CA Association website and find a new range of membership options. Starting with cadets and midshipmen, membership is only $10 a year. We then have our basic annual membership at $40 per year and two years at $60, or finally, a three-year membership for only $80. Our most popular and best value option is a lifetime membership at a one-time price of $200. Be a member and don't miss out. 2020 is a big year with transformational changes underway. Lots of new opportunities for members. Don't miss out. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.